Welcome to EM Guidewire, brought to you by the emergency medicine residents and faculty at Carolina's Medical Center in Charlotte, North Carolina. Hello everyone and welcome again to EM Guidewire. I find myself here again in my closet addressing you instead of being at our recording studios, just trying to stay socially distant from my children, I guess. Okay, well, maybe I'm hiding, but we all have to do what is necessary to keep each other healthy nowadays. Last episode was the audio portion of Dr. Tregonis's talk during our EM residency conference at CMC, done virtually, of course, being responsible humans that we are. Please, if you've missed that, I encourage you to go either watch the video that is hosted on the website under the Global EM section, or again, listen to it on the podcast. I implore you to do so as it will inevitably be useful information and help you save lives. This episode is also extremely important and is from one of our brilliant toxicologists here at Carolina's Medical Center, Dr. Geib, who will address the troubling topic of hydroxychloroquine toxicity. Again, the entire presentation is also available for you to watch on our Global EM section of our website. I do apologize for inadvertently cutting off the very beginning of the talk. My silly fat fingers hit the wrong button when she started speaking that morning, and I apologize to her and you. I will try to do better in the future. With that being said, let's learn what we need to look out for and how to manage patients who may have had the misfortune of overdosing on this medication. here at Atrium is hydroxychloroquine. Um, I will be using that name um, more frequently throughout the presentation. So we'll talk about the timeliness and evolving indications for hydroxychloroquine therapy, um, some of the pharmacolo pharmacology of um, two investigational agents, those being chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine, um, how to recognize toxicity from hydroxychloroquine, and the elements of a treatment plan. Um, those of you who have had the toxicology rotation um, have heard me say, my goal is to teach you how to get a patient to survive for two hours in the ED until we can, you know, get them up or you can get help. Um, so that's what I'm going to focus on. All right. If you remember from medical school, um, chloroquine is used for malaria in parts of the world where there is still susceptibility, and that's mostly Latin America. Um, the rest of the world uh, has a high degree of chloroquine resistance and uh, uses other agents to treat malaria. Hydroxychloroquine is an anti-inflammatory agent that is marketed under the brand name Plaquenil. You may see that uh, being used by patients who have lupus or rheumatoid arthritis, and uh, that acts as an anti-inflammatory um, both are only available orally, and I found out in certain parts of the world, um, chloroquine is available over the counter. This has some current importance because in COVID-19, its, uh, its use has been proposed as an antiviral agent. Um, so there are some intracellular mechanisms that, um, that basically inhibit um, viral attachment, endocytosis, and ultimately lead to destruction of the novel virus. Uh, so virus goes boom, bye-bye. So this has been tried in some experimental settings in China and in France. Um, most recently, there was a uh, study 
published by a French group. Uh, you see that graph on the right side of, the, of your screen. Um, this was a study of a, about 20 patients and looked at the use of hydroxychloroquine and um, in combination with azithromycin and alone. And the endpoint of this study was to look at virologic clearance. Um, what you see in the green line is that there is an increase in virologic clearance um, when hydroxychloroquine is used with azithromycin. Uh, the blue line represents uh, the virologic trend when hydroxychloroquine is used alone. Um, it was used in, only in hospitalized patients and in those who have no cardiac disease because there are some pretty significant toxicities associated with hydroxychloroquine. Additionally, uh, the study did not look at uh, cardiac toxicity or adverse events. Um, as we know, um, azithromycin and hydroxychloroquine both have QT prolonging effects, so, um, so we're a little hesitant to use this combination here in the United States. Um, there are multiple clinical trials underway, um, and hydroxychloroquine just received emergency FDA approval for treatment of COVID disease. All right. The problem is that um, certain people who are not health experts have touted the use of chloroquine or hydroxychloroquine uh, for treatment and or prevention of coronavirus disease. And, and people do listen to that and uh, take it upon themselves to take chloroquine or hydroxychloroquine on their own and they can do a lot of damage. So there, were a, there was a series of three cases in Nigeria where chloroquine's available over the counter, uh, where people poisoned themselves. Um, and I think, I think three of them died. Additionally, there was a couple in Arizona who decided to take chloroquine. Uh, they basically diverted it from a aquarium cleaner and um, the husband was killed and the wife was uh, pretty seriously ill after um, taking it upon themselves. They didn't really measure out how much they were using. Uh, they basically were aquarium enthusiasts and remembered that they had this aquarium cleaner in the back of their closet. They and, uh, decided to play pharmacist. So <laughs> I, um, I tried to look this up online and see how easy is it to get chloroquine. Um, a lot of sources, um, now have like their chloroquine supplies sold out, but you can get it on eBay for $500. Um, I don't think that this is like a very good idea, um, nor is hoarding hydroxychloroquine for your own or your family's use because you're um, depriving somebody else who needs the drug for their rheumatic disease uh, a chance to get treatment and it's, it's making things harder for a lot of people. So don't do this. This whole situation just makes me want to do this. Stop touching your face. All right, so look how do these drugs behave. Um, chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine are both rapidly absorbed and have a slow redistribution phase. And it's thought to be that this rapid absorption in overdose causes a very rapid onset of to toxicity you'll see that agents have a very large volume of distribution and are pretty substantially protein bound. Um, they also do have a long half-life. Um, all these properties together make neither drug amenable to hemodialysis. 
Um, so that kind of makes things a little bit difficult to treat in the overdose situation. With therapeutic dosing, um, you will see uh, with long-term high-dose use, cardiomyopathy, long QT, and an increased risk of arrhythmias. Um, some patients will uh, have GI upset. Remember that these drugs are only available as, um, as oral formulations. So um, in order to minimize GI upset, you actually want to give this with food. Um, there's an increased risk of seizures and also of hypoglycemia because hydroxychloroquine induces insulin release. So um, if you have a patient who's on anti-diabetics, uh, especially you would want to be mindful of monitoring their blood sugar. Um, there is always that concern, uh, Dr. Tyal, about um, hemolytic anemia in patients with G6PD. Um, this phenomenon is thought to be rare and probably has to do a lot with how severely G6PD deficient you are and what other uh, drugs you may be taking. Um, so the approach to starting somebody on hydroxychloroquine therapy in the setting of G6PD deficiency is usually taken on a case-by-case -case basis and we, we weigh the risk versus the benefit. Additionally, a lot of the time we don't know who's G6PD deficient, so that makes our decision-making a little more, more complex. Um, again, with long-term use, patients may have a granulocytosis, retinopathy, um, maculopapular rash, or increased LFTs. You're unlikely to see these in patients with coronavirus disease who are receiving hydroxychloroquine because this is short-term use and not high-dose use. As a reminder, uh, we, are, we are treating patients at atrium with hydroxychloroquine admitted with coronavirus disease. We're finding that a lot of patients are not receiving a baseline EKG, and it makes it difficult on the floor to monitor their... Um, their QTs. So I would uh, express to you uh, that we have an opportunity to increase the safety of this medication by obtaining a baseline EKG while the patient is in the ED. Um, and you can, you know, get this off the monitor. At the very least, um, you know, you can print out an EKG strip and hand measure the QT interval. But please uh, try to obtain this in the, uh, in the ED as much as possible because it's not getting done as much on the floors as we would like. Drug interactions with hydroxychloroquine include digoxin. Um, so hydroxychloroquine through an unknown mechanism increases digoxin levels. Um, there is a pharmacodynamic interaction with antiarrhythmics and QT prolonging drugs such as amiodarone, which is all of our favorite uh, medications. Um, there is, again, a possibly additive effect with insulin and other uh, anti-diabetics, so you do want to monitor the patient's glucose if they're going on hydroxychloroquine. Um, antacids will reduce the bioavailability of hydroxychloroquine, and so um, if you have to give a patient an antacid, wait at least four hours before you give hydroxychloroquine. Cimetidine seems to inhibit the, me the metabolism of hydroxychloroquine, so uh, that may lead to an increase in adverse effects. So um, if the patient's on cimetidine, you should uh, definitely uh, try to discontinue it, reconsider your, um, your medication there. And then CYP3A4 inhibitors, um, they work to inhibit the metabolism of hydroxychloroquine. 
Um, so if the patient's on grapefruit juice or verapamil, um, you would want to reconsider their therapy. So how does hydroxychloroquine exert its toxicity? It does so by potassium and sodium channel blockade. Um, this leads to negative inotropy, inhibition of diastolic depolarization, slowed conduction, um, increased effective refractory period, and that translates into a long QT. Um, the patient will have decreased contractility. They could have decreased excitability. There's also some alpha blockade, which leads to vasodilation and contributes to the hypotension. Um, and overall, this leads to myocardial depression, QRS prolongation, and QTC prolongation. In the setting of overdose, um, the onset of toxicity is usually within the first three hours. And what you may see is signs of a prolonged PR interval, QRS interval, QT intervals, and ventricular dysrhythmias, wide complex uh, dysrhythmias, or torsades. Uh, patients will have hypotension, cardiovascular collapse, and shock. Hypokalemia is a pretty noteworthy effect of hydroxychloroquine overdose, and that seems to do with uh, some intracellular shifting by uh, hydroxychloroquine. A low potassium correlates with, you know, more severe outcomes, especially if the potassium is less than 1.9. Um, and this does play into how we treat the patient, so we'll have a little discussion about that as well. Respiratory effects include tachypnea, pulmonary edema, which, you know, our patients are going to have anyway, respiratory depression, and apnea. So all around a bad day. CNS effects include seizures, agitation, and psychosis in children. Patients may also have hypoglycemia, again, from that insulin release. And um, rarely you may see some hemolytic anemia in those with G6PD deficiency. Patients usually um, will improve within 24 hours with proper treatment, but some can have a prolonged course. So here's an example of EKG findings that you'll see in patients who've had hydroxychloroquine overdose. This is from a 20-year-old female um, who ingested 36 grams of hydroxychloroquine and survived after she received appropriate treatment. What you see at the, at the top, the top panel shows the EKG at 2.5 hours after ingestion, and the QRS is 128, QTC is 684. You see that the R wave in AVR is big and wide and slurred. Um, so that is a sign of both sodium channel and potassium channel blockade with that long QT. 10 and a half hours after ingestion, you see that the, the EKG isn't really much changed with the exception of maybe some improvement with the QTC. And then 68 hours post-ingestion, almost three days later, she normalized. So these patients may have a long course. Death is likely, poor prognostic signs, um, ingestion greater than uh, five grams, anyone presenting with a systolic blood pressure less than 80, a QRS greater than 120, usually in toxicology land, that's pretty bad. Um, ventricular dysrhythmias, usually also a bad thing, or a level greater than eight mics per ml. That said, it's unlikely that we're going to get a hydroxychloroquine level in any clinically meaningful amount of time. Um, Chloroquine toxicity in some series have shown up to 30% mortality in adults. 
good prognostic signs are if the patient had some early emesis. And it sounds like in that, um, that couple from Arizona, the wife actually had been vomiting a lot early on, and uh, this was thought to be somewhat protective. Um, better prognosis, obviously, if the blood pressure and EKG are normal, and patient has a normal level of consciousness six hours out after ingestion. Also, the less you ingest, the better off you're probably going to be. So how do we treat these patients? All ED treatment starts with aggressive supportive care, including intubation, but especially, um, especially in these patients, uh, they'll be receiving some treatments that will require intubation. So early intubation should be considered. Um, if the patient is presenting early enough, you can give activated charcoal and hope to bind up whatever is left in the gut. Um, patients with hypotension should receive fluids. Now, that being said, you know, we know that um, over-volume resuscitating patients who have COVID pulmonary disease does seem to lead to worse outcomes. So um, I would be somewhat judicious about the volume resuscitation. And then start early adding pressors. Um, pressor therapy is going to be high dose, and we'll get into that in a minute. Um, diazepam also seems to improve survival uh, and is given in high doses. So the aspects of treatment, the cornerstones of treatment are going to be good supportive care, GID contamination when it's appropriate, early intubation with high dose Valium, bicarbonate, potassium replacement, and high dose Epi. So rat studies and also uh, case series clinical studies have shown that high-dose diazepam seems to impact mortality um, and your indications for that are going to be, duh, any patient who's having seizures, but also anybody who's in shock or having ventricular dysrhythmias because there is thought to be some direct effect of diazepam on the heart. Now, I want to point out that this is high-dose diazepam. So we're looking at two milligrams per kilogram over 30 minutes. So like in your average, you know, 70 kilogram adult, we're talking about 140 milligrams of diazepam, and that is going to raise some eyebrows. So communication with your team is important. Um, patients should then be maintained on a continuous infusion until they're better. Um, and obviously, uh, diazepam is a pretty potent CNS depressant, so um, early intubation is indicated in these patients. Remember that hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine are derivatives of quinidine, which is a type 1 uh, or a class 1 antiarrhythmic um, and leads to sodium channel blockade and that QRS widening that I was discussing before. So these patients should respond to bicarbonate. Remember that dosing for bicarbonate is 1 to 4 milliequivalents per kilogram, and um, this will cause a additional shifting of potassium intracellularly. So you do want to watch the electrolytes and pH. Your goal pH should be between 7.45 and 7.55. Potassium replacement is going to be judicious because there is a lot of intracellular shifting of potassium. And as the patient improves, um, you're going to have a lot of extracellular shifting of potassium. And uh, those potassium uh, gradient shifts can uh, lead to fatal hyperkalemia. So we do have to be judicious. I know that 
in a lot of the cardiac units, uh, we'd like to get the potassium into the high normal range. Um, we've had a lot of discussions as a toxicology division about what's the optimal potassium for these patients. And we're, our consensus is between 3.5 to 4 millimoles per liter. Um, again, the bicarbonate, the epi, and the hydroxychloroquine are all going to lead to intracellular shifting. So you do, um, you do want to make sure the patient has good uh, renal function. You want to um, be judicious and gentle with the replacement. And um, I would also recommend against um, oral potassium replacement because that can lead to like a bees door in the gut or a depot that uh, can get released later on. Just like any other patient who has a QT prolongation situation from a pharmacologic cause, um, you want to treat when the QTC is greater than 500 milliseconds or when the patient has torsades. Treatments is, again, gentle potassium replacement. Acute treatment, if the patient has a really high QTC or torsades, is going to be with magnesium, uh, two to four grams over 30 minutes. Um, if that fails, um, you want to go to overdrive pacing or isoproteranol. And then high-dose epi, um, again, uh, provides some inotropy um, and then will help reverse some of the hypotension. Um, High-dose epi is going to be 0.1 to 1 mics per kilogram per minute to start, and then you titrate up. Um, patients with refractory uh, vasodilatory shock could go on norepinephrine because that provides some al more alpha squeeze than does epinephrine. And you can start at 8 to 12 mics per minute, and then you want to titrate to maintain an appropriate blood pressure. Other things to be mindful for are um, treating severe hypokalemia only. So again, you know, we, our goal potassium is above 3.5. Um, replenish the glucose, so frequent blood sugar checks and appropriate replacement. Um, ECMO may be considered as a salvage therapy for patients in refractory shock. You do want to avoid class 1A antidysrhythmics. And the literature on lipid emulsion is uh, somewhat mixed, and it's on the level of case reports. So we, we don't have a lot of we don't have a lot of evidence that it does or does not help. So if you're resorting to that, I would uh, suggest obtaining a toxicology consult to help uh, with that decision making. Just thinking about our our pediatric patients, this is a one pill can kill situation. So again, we do have patients who take chronic hydroxychloroquine therapy for the rheumatic disease. And um, if they have small children around, um, there is always a risk that they will be exposed. So anyone with a, um, with any, any child with a hydroxychloroquine or chloroquine ingestion uh, should be sent into the ED. So to summarize, hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine are drugs in development for COVID-19 disease, and we are using it here at Atrium. Um, there are possibilities and opportunities, unfortunately, for overdose or therapeutic misadventures. You should obtain a baseline EKG. If you have a patient who has a reported overdose, you should expect cardiac, neurotoxicity, and um, hypoglycemia. Um, Treatment, again, 
is with high-dose Valium, epinephrine, bicarbonate, and potassium replacement. And toxicology consults are available 24-7. You can reach us through the Poison Center, and we'll be happy to walk you through the treatment. I want to thank Dr. Dulini from the Poison Center and the Toxicology Division who um, pr uh, provided me with some slides to get this presentation started, and she deserves a lot of credit. Thanks for listening to EM Guidewire. Go! Be awesome today! CMC out.